You're listening to the Bottom Line Podcast, where those living with or beyond bowel cancer, as well as health professionals involved in bowel cancer treatment and care, share their inspirational stories and lived experiences with host and bowel cancer survivor, Stephanie. The marketing spiel states a 50th birthday gift that could save your life. Today's guest, Gabrielle, credits the poo test, the National Bowel Cancer Screening Program, as doing just that, helping to save her life. She was asymptomatic, but the test discovered blood in her poo and consequently, Gabrielle was diagnosed with stage three bowel cancer in 2020. However, nearly three years later, her worst fear materialized with a recurrence. Gabrielle joins us today from rural Victoria to talk about the challenges she faced, particularly as a regional patient, the differences in care between her diagnosis and subsequent diagnosis, the barriers she's experienced, and the importance of being an advocate for your own health. Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Bottom Line Podcast. It's my pleasure. I know that you are undergoing treatment at the moment, so we all know there's ups and downs in those moments, so really glad you could join us. We all know that bowel cancer is no walk in the park. I've often said that it's the unsexy cancer or I got the wrong cancer, but you've had a particularly harrowing three to four years. Talk us through your initial diagnosis back in 2020. So, uh, as you said, uh, it was the uh, government birthday present uh, <laughs> screening program. Now, I have to say the bowel cancer stuff had been on the horizon. My mum had always had polyps, but I checked in regularly with my GP and the guidelines at the time when I hit 40, I checked in again. It's like, no, no, just do the screening program at 50. So, uh, potentially I'm one of those people that could have been slightly better off if 45 was the new 50 like it is now. <laughs> well, on that note, the guidelines say that, but we're yet to get the government to implement and fund. So, we need that to happen. Yes, indeed. One step at a time. But That's right. Gee, they're slow steps. <laughs> they are. Sorry, I interrupted. No, no, that's all right. I, uh, so, yes, the screening, um, wasn't expecting anything of it. Uh, and actually, when I did the screening, only one of my, t- you take two samples, for those of you that haven't done the test, and only one of mine came back positive. And my GP was like, look, it's probably nothing, but you've gone to all this trouble, you should do the colonoscopy. I'm like, absolutely, there's no point in only half doing the test. Mm. Now, because it was COVID, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I was slightly lucky because I got my screening colonoscopy within the 30 days on the public system, which is gold standard, really unheard of when you live in a regional area because there are not that many people that do them. So I got mine. Even the uh, physician who did my scope, there was only one polyp, but it was one that was flat on the surface, so he couldn't remove it. He didn't think it was anything to worry about. He took biopsies and marked it, did all the right things, you know, for down the track, sent it off. He said, look, I think probably what will happen, you'll need to go down to Melbourne to get it removed, but we were in hard lockdown at that point, so that wasn't really possible. We said, I don't think there's an immediate rush. So everyone was quite surprised when the pathology came back and said it was an adenocarcinoma. So my GP, bless her, got the results on a Friday, but knew that there was nothing we could do about it till Monday, so didn't tell me until the Monday, which I really appreciated. Oh, hallelujah. I know. I got mine on a Friday saying that, we have to wait for pathology and I had to wait. It was the longest weekend in history. I know, and I've spoken to so many people where this happens, like people ring up to make an appointment to give you results they already know about. I was like, no, 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 just ring me with the results. Don't, you know, it's stressful enough. 100%. So anyway, again, thanks to COVID, I saw my GP on the Monday. 
I had a CT on the Tuesday and I was sitting with the surgeon on a Wednesday. Wow. And that was all in regional Victoria? Yeah, that was all in regional Victoria. And we will talk about that regional aspect a little later. So do you think COVID actually helped you fast track that in a way? Yes, no question. And I I did go as a private patient. um, So obviously that made a difference when it came to surgery. But realistically, my surgeon said, you know, the advantage of going private is I can schedule you and you can go to the private hospital and have your own room. And I just thought having bowel surgery, it's probably nice to have your own room and your own bathroom. And also you're paying for it. So you may as well get some money's worth exactly. out of it. Uh, I had my surgery two weeks later and the main reason for that was my surgeon wanted me to put on some weight before the surgery because he didn't expect that I would need a stoma but expected it would take me a while to get back to regular eating and that I would lose some weight. It's the first time in my life a medical professional has ever told me to put on weight That was um, and to do some exercise, which I was already doing. So yeah, then I had my surgery two weeks later. Um, everyone was pretty happy with how it went. I didn't need a stoma. I was in hospital for two weeks because my bowels were a bit sluggish to get started. And then unfortunately, pathology came back with one node, tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of cancer in one node. So uh, then I was shipped off to an oncologist and uh, started off with three months of Capox, so capecitabine and oxaliplatin, but I'm one of those people that really doesn't do well in oxaliplatin because the idea of this was what they call insurance chemo, just to really try and make sure. And one of my biggest things was p- avoiding peripheral neuropathy if I could. So to my oncologist, I don't want to live another 30 years if I can't use my hands and feet because that will mean so many things of my life that I enjoy I won't be able to do. So I think it's important when you're thinking about treatment to think about what your goals are for treatment in all stages. Like what do you want out of your life, however long it's going to be, and none of us really know how long that will be. Some of us have got maybe a better idea of what's coming for us, but that doesn't mean that's going to be the thing that ships us off the planet in the end. We say at Bowel Cancer Australia, and I think this is a really, you've raised a really pertinent point, to live your best life, isn't it? And it is about that because, you know, I've still got neuropathy, 12 years later, not badly, but I still get it. And if you get it very badly, it can really impact your quality of life. Yeah, agreed. And by the second cycle of oxaliplatin, I was having cold neuropathy for 16 days. It should only be two to three, at least at that stage. So I was then flipped over to do a full six months of Cape Cytobine, which I did. And then like poodled on my way with the regular surveillance, three monthly bloods, six monthly scans and did that for two and a half years. I want to ask before we go off the screening program, we only have a 42% to 43% take up of this, which means that there's, you know, 56, 57% that are not doing it. I have thoughts around that from a marketing perspective, but what do you think? What's your feedback as a patient for better engagement, because it really does help. We've got a great system, but we're not doing it. Yeah. Uh, And look, I have to say the reason that I did the screening program was because the packet turned up and I was looking for it. So you're already familiar with it. So I was already familiar with it. I was waiting for it because there was some family history and I knew that it was coming and I am um, quite engaged in managing my own care. So uh, look, I just think, look, poo is deeply unsexy. No one likes to talk about it. But if you're a parent of either like actual children or fur children, you've picked up other people's poo. 
doing the test is actually less icky than picking up other people's poo. It's definitely less icky than baby nappies. Second that motion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you um, you just have to it, – it's like for me, it was just a bit of a no-brainer. But I think it's it's really difficult. People have a tendency to default to being reactive. Um, people, it's almost like head in the sand. I don't want to know if there's a problem. But the problem is much easier to tackle if you know about it sooner. I, I couldn't agree more with you. I've been talking about poo now for twelve years. It's my dinner conversation. My fifteen-year-old son said, "Can we talk about anything else, Mum?" But I think that it's really important, you know, you were expecting it. You're an advocate for your own health and you know what's coming and you're looking after your body. I think we need to. We know as women that we need to have a pap smear. We need to, as men, have prostate checks. We go and have our skin checked. And as part of that health prevention, we need to make sure that we put the bowel cancer screening program on our agenda when we're, well, hopefully 45. I would take a poo test over a mammogram. Any day of the week. I would too. And that hurts having <laughs> yeah, a mammogram. Yep. <laughs> and as you and I know, there's a lot more complications if you do find bowel cancer. It's better to prevent and find out than, you know, to go down the road that you and I have been down and yours has been more harrowing than mine. And I think it's also that there needs to be some way to, to sell the what's in it for me. Like to, you know, for those people that have kids, you want to be around to see your kids grow up. You want to be around to do things, you know, with them and enjoy time with them. Or, you know, if you don't have kids, you have things that you want to do with your life. This is a, you know, it can really derail the things that you want to do with your life. Mm, If you can avoid getting it. Uh, Look, it's great that with the early detection, it's, it's an easy cancer to cure and to deal with. But you've got to detect it early. Correct. And it's always better to detect it so early that it hasn't had a chance to form. Yes, yes. And I think that's the bit that's missing from the message is that, you know, it's not just, you know, about finding cancer. It's about finding if maybe your bowels are, you know, might be predisposed if you've got lots of polyps. Then you can do something about that before it becomes a problem. And you you mentioned there, and you are spot on, the fact that your cancer probably was growing well before it was detected with the at age 50. So a drop in access to the screening kit from say 45 or even 40 uh, from your GP, which is what the NHMRC have now recommended, would have caught that for you. Again, early detection. Exactly. Which leads me to your next steps, I suppose. You then went on your merry way, living life to the full, but then you had a recurrence in January 2023. Yes. How did that come about and how did you feel? So I actually, uh, so I had my screening colonoscopy after the first year. That was all fine. So this was in my second year. Then my uh, uh, surgeon said, you know, do the poo test in that year and then depending on what it is, we'll schedule the colonoscopy or not. Did the poo test, it was clear. I had my holiday, had six weeks in Queensland. It's the holiday we should have had that we got locked out of. (laughs) <laughs> we all escaped, didn't we? Yeah, For exactly. all those that are non-Melburnians yeah, all, or Victorians, yeah, we, we yeah. escaped. All those Victorians who's going, thank goodness I can get back to Queensland and have some winter sun. <laughs> Correct. So I came back from holidays and, you know, you should never judge your bowel habits on holidays, whether or not you've had <laughs> bowel surgery, but especially when you've had bowel surgery. I've been home for a month and said, oh, yeah, you know, just just doesn't, it's not settling, not quite right. I had an appointment with my surgeon 
few weeks later, I went to him and said, oh, you know, he looks at everything, protest. I said, yeah, but, you know, I'm just not sure. It hasn't quite, it's not quite what it was before. You know, I can't really put my finger on what it is. He goes, fine, we'll do another colonoscopy. He had a very, he's got a very low threshold, again, which I'm really grateful for. He was a great surgeon. It was coming, it was the end of November. So January was when I could get the colonoscopy done. Subsequently, two weeks later, I went and saw my oncologist, had my quarterly bloods. He goes, ah, yeah, look, your markers are going up a bit. I think maybe, you, you know, it's time to do a colonoscopy. I said, actually, I've got one booked already, <laughs> way ahead of you. <laughs> and yes, unfortunately, that um, showed a tumour, which was a regrowth from a bit that just was outside of so my margins. Everything was clear from the first surgery. There was nothing to indicate, nothing at the CT that I'd had seven months before to indicate anything either. So uh, it just sort of took off and made a happy home. And a tumour back in your bowel? Tumour back in my bowel, mm. yeah. How did that make you feel, Gabrielle? Now, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I think and something that anyone who's listening to this who, who is a cancer patient will, will know, there is a part of you that's always waiting for the other shoe to drop. I think no matter how, and, and well, the closer I got to that five-year sort of goal, I think the more anxious I became about every scan because the first ones you just go, oh, I've just had treatment, it'll be fine. But the further it goes out, the more chance potentially, I don't know statistically, but it feels in your head the more chance there is. So, Because you have those markers, don't you? You have yeah. those, those key milestones that you want to hit. Yeah. And whether it's psychological or not, they're there. And, you know, every blood test, every scan is the possibility for something that you weren't expecting. So was I totally surprised to find myself in that position? Not really. Uh, I like think there's always was in the back of my mind, but I was super annoyed <laughs> to sort of like be there so soon. And it was a bit more complicated because it was close to the sacral bone and it was bigger than my last one um so it's obviously growing fairly quickly so this time around then it was six weeks of chemo radiation and then I had a break I saw three surgeons I feel very greedy so my first surgeon said <laughs> he said look I don't do redos and certainly not one in a position like, well, no, actually, I really respect him for this. He said, especially not one in a position like that. He said, I'm getting too old. I'm heading for retirement. You need to see someone else who will do a better job for you. Yeah, great advice. You'd rather that. So he sent me to another surgeon who was also local, who trained with him. He also looked at it. At the same time, I just thought, oh, and I've got a friend who's a GP who was in my ear about, um, I want you to get a second opinion of not just someone local, but someone from Melbourne. So, okay, fine. So then I found another surgeon from Melbourne and I had organised a second opinion with him and managed to get one within a week. And the surgeon that I saw in Albury, who also trained with the guy in Melbourne to close the <laughs> system, yeah. at the same time as I saw him, had sent my details down to the surgeon in Melbourne because he thought that I would need uh, interoperative radiation. So, and, and as it turns out, that was the consensus. And so, um, Peter Mac is the only place where you can get that done in Victoria. So, uh, I ended up going to Melbourne for my surgery. So, many trips up and down the Hume Highway. And for people who don't know, the distance is about two and a half, three hours? It's three, three and a half to get to the centre of Melbourne. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, it's a seven hour. We can do the round trip in about seven hours of driving on a good day. And, you know, we'll come back to, I really want to come back to that uh, regional piece because I think that's really important. 
But I just want to flip back for a quick second around scanxiety because it really is a real term. <laughs> I think it should go in the dictionary if it isn't already. Did you have any coping mechanisms around it leading up to your diagnosis or even post your diagnosis? What tips have you got for people that might be going through that? Uh, it's not going to come as a surprise to you that I'm going to say exercise. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> um, and by exercise, it's whatever floats your boat, gets your body moving. For me, I really like strength training and I like swimming. They're the, the two things. Um, I go for walks with my dogs and do that sort of stuff. I don't really like to sweat. I don't love cardio. So I need to disguise my cardio in weight sessions by you know tricking myself that I'm doing the thing that I like while getting in the thing that I don't like, but that's good for me. <laughs> to be honest, that works the best. Uh, I've tried that with some people, you know, reading or um watching TV, but I just, my mind is to, I need something to be a bit more like that I really have to focus on. Well, I have found building Lego very good. Expensive hobby. <laughs> very. It's the right level of absorbing. Jigsaws require too much cognitive input and when your brain's already overloaded, that's just too much. And in a fog, yep. Yeah, but Lego, you've got instructions, It's a, but you have to follow them. So it's absorbing in that way. And then I would just listen to a book or a podcast or something while I was building Lego. And what, what have you built? Uh, I've built, because uh, I'm a massive Potter head, so, so all, all my Lego, my new Lego is uh, Harry Potter. So my biggest, my post big surgery project was the Hogwarts castle, which was 6,200 pieces. That kept me happily occupied for, I spun that one out for about three weeks. Will we see you on Lego Masters? Oh, uh, no. Uh, no, <laughs> need to follow orders. Um, I wouldn't cope with that because I'm not good on detail. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So really, you know, it's, it's what floats your boat and finding something that you enjoy that can distract you. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like cooking. and I do a lot of preserving and stuff as well. The challenge because for me is, at least in my case, and, and I think it's true for, for many, bowel surgery significantly changed my relationship with food. I really don't have an appetite anymore. Um, I haven't done since my first surgery. The chemo, certainly, even though I had a couple, only a couple of rounds of Oxy, the chemo sort of interfered with my sense of taste and none of the, it hasn't completely come back. Subsequent bowel surgery hasn't helped some of that situation. So it's a little bit more challenging to get excited about cooking food when you're not really excited about eating it. So I've had to find other things to sort of fill in the time. Well, fabulous that you've found Lego and I'm sure Lego are thrilled. <laughs> I want to talk about, you know, bowel cancer is not gender specific and that has its own nuances. And as a female, what are some of the obstacles that you've come up against? My biggest obstacle was, I think, having a male surgeon who, for reasons best known only to him, decided not to raise the possibility that my surgery would require a hysterectomy until the morning of my surgery through his resident when I'm signing the consent form. Communication, communication, communication. I can just about guarantee if I was a man and there was a possibility that my testicles would be removed, I wouldn't have just been hearing about it then. No. Now, I'm over 50, certainly not planning to have any children at this point of time, but I was not menopausal. So that means that I woke up unexpectedly to a surgical menopause. Now, as an aside, I'm a migrainer. The worst thing for a migrainer is a surgical menopause. There's plenty of literature that suggests that that is true. Um, so I 
spun off, I don't know, I think three or four migraines in my first week in hospital. Um, I got zero support from any gynae team. I requested on multiple occasions to have access to some gynecological support and the best that they could do was tell me to make an appointment with the outpatient clinic. So I didn't sleep more than two hours for six weeks, at which point in desperation I called my GP and she was just, well, of course, of course, you've had because I had my ovaries removed. Did they put you on a, a, a look? Uh, I had a full hysterectomy some years later because my mother had ovarian cancer, so mine was. Um, I chose to, but did they put you on a hormonal patch or any form of? There was no support until in desperation, I reached out to my GP and just said, "Look, I, you know, I'm not going to be able to recover from surgery if I can't sleep." And she was like, "Well, no, of course you can't." Um, so she, bless her, went into bat with me. We had a tactical discussion. <laughs> Because at this point, I'm still wearing TEDs every day and I'd only just finished taking the Clexane, the blood thinner, which is one of the things that you have to do post big surgeries like that. So we we made a tactical, you know, what was I prepared to do if cause she wanted to just confirm with the surgeon because it does slightly increase your clotting risk going on HRT. Um, so she just wanted to run it by to make sure the surgeon was happy. Would I be prepared to do the Clexane for the full, you know, six weeks or whatever? Um, yes, anything, if it means we can try and get me back to some sleep. Um, so as it turned out, he just wanted me to wear the stockings for an extra four weeks, which was fine. But aside from that, Gabrielle, firstly, you need to be involved in that decision. It's your body. A hysterectomy is not just a small surgery. It's massive. It changes a great deal of things for a woman any age, but coming up to that menopausal age and not have had that discussion with you is just uh, unacceptable. Yeah, I was gobsmacked. And when you're recovering from a big, because, you know, I had a bowel resection. They had to take a little bit of my small bowel. They took a big bowel. I had a stoma. I had uterus out, ovaries out, cervix out, everything out. And I was in the best cancer hospital in Victoria and they must, they, they do. It's not they must, they do put women into surgical menopause on a daily basis. So I was gobsmacked that there was no support. And I think everyone just, oh, well, you're not sleeping because you're in hospital or whatever. And, you know, I spoke to the pain team about my migraines and it, it just no one's collect, connecting the dots. So on that then, the allied health and that support system is really important. And obviously exercise is something that's very important to you. What areas did you access? Well, apart from that bit, uh, I've had two really diametrically opposite experiences. So my first diagnosis, my first surgery, um, I'm in regional, I'm in a small private hospital. I saw a dietitian once, I saw a physio twice, they're mostly interested in my breathing and, and that you're getting out of bed and you're ambul ambulatory. But I didn't go home with any guidelines, so then you know, I've had major abdominal surgery, I don't really want to get a hernia, so then I am while trying to recover from that surgery, trying scrabbling around trying to find you know, some physio support, like from a women's health physio to talk about what I need to do and how I could safely get back to recovering and building back up my strength. Um, I didn't have any dietitian support at all. So um, that ended up coming from Bowel Cancer Australia when I discovered you accidentally doing a web search. We hear that often. And uh, in terms of uh, psych support, which I lined myself up with before surgery, actually, because both my GP and I figured that it was something I was going to need and it was COVID and we didn't know how long we were going to have to wait. 
and I, I had some support locally, which was good, but not as good as oncology-specific care, but it, it was something. But I'm doing all this myself while trying to recover and navigate the whole new cancer, post-cancer, chemo life stuff. And Gabrielle, you're also health literate. You understand and are happy to search and, and work through that with your GP. But some people just go, I'm just going to let that come through and be guided by my specialists and may never get that care. I, I completely get it. And I mean, I've actually worked in cancer research, so from a like, public health perspective. And so I have pretty good connections in the regional area. I've worked with cancer care coordinators for other cancers. Uh, you know, I've, I've worked with the oncologists or some of the oncologists up in this area. My best friend, one of my best friends is a GP. You know, another friend who's had cancer is a nurse. I, I am lucky in that I have these people and, even, and, and I still found it hard. So it doesn't surprise me that people don't get the support they need especially if they're living in a disconnected rural environment. Complete contrast, Peter Mack had just thrown so much support at me. Um, it was crazy. And they're almost apologetic about it. Now, we've got this thing called Surgery School, which is just the best program I've ever come across to help you prepare for surgery. And you hear from a physio and a dietitian, and they give you the breathing exercises that they want you to do so you can practice them beforehand. I had an appointment with psychology. I had a pre like surgery appointment with dietitians. I'm still seeing the dietitians from Peter Mack on a three-monthly basis. They're still checking in with me. I'm still getting support from the um, pain management team because I had some nerve damage as part of the surgery in my leg. I'm still seeing a psychologist. All of that is publicly funded. All my stuff up here locally is privately funded. And that's the other barrier for people up here is Yes, there are services available if you can find them and stitch something together for yourself, but most of them are private. And if you don't have the financial resources, they're out of reach for you in as much as Melbourne is out of reach for you if you can't afford to drive down there and pay for accommodation. I mean, there is, Victoria does have a patient transport assistance scheme, but it takes three months to get refunded. So you still need to have the funds available to afford the petrol and the accommodation if you need it. But yeah, because my second surgery was was in Peter Mac, I was able to, you know, have access to that. Um, and the support's been really good. Uh, and that just came to you, which is as it should be. You should be given the option. Do you want this? Do you want this? And I was just like, there is no such thing as throwing too much support at me, having had the experience from the other end of the spectrum, the fact that I could just sit there and everyone would just say, do you want this? Yes, that'd be great. And all I have to do is like click yes if I can make the appointment time. And many people have said this, having cancer can be a full-time job. Yeah, it's a full-time job where the pay is shit, excuse the expression, and the, condi <laughs> and the conditions are worse. And it absolutely is just managing your own stuff. Are you working at the moment, Gabrielle? I'm not, no. And I didn't work when I was having treatment. It would be incredibly difficult to, I think I feel for people who are trying to juggle that. Hats off to those people that I say, that like see go and work in their, their off weeks. Um, but having said that, I, I am fortunate because I'm self-employed um, and I've always had income protection insurance. So it's not the same money as I'd be earning, but it's something. So, you know, it's, it's an, yeah, it's massive. If for nothing else, it's worth it just not having to deal with Centrelink. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And when we're talking about that, I think it's really important to talk about that regional versus metro um, paradigm. There shouldn't be this disparity. No. And, and even this time around, um, 
just to close the loop on my story, unfortunately, in my first three monthly bloods after my surgery were concerning and it subsequently turns out I've now gone to stage four. So I have METs in my liver and my lungs. So I'm back on chemo again. Um, that really annoyed me. That really annoyed me because I spent all of last year in treatment. This year was supposed to be my fun year when I would do some trips and, you know, have a holiday and just, you know, no. No, rolled straight back into treatment and I'm really dirty about it. I've got to be honest. It's really pissed off. And rightly so. Just like, give me a freaking break. But you do have a really good saying that before we got on the podcast, you said uh, something about being miserable. Uh, Yes. No, my my new mantra that I've worked on again with my psychologist and I just think if you can access some form of psychological support, I cannot recommend it strongly enough. Even if you don't think you need it or maybe you only need one or two sessions, it is so helpful to have someone who is there just to listen to you. You don't have to make them feel better about your cancer. You don't have to worry about what they're feeling. You can be completely honest and just like, talk about anything and not, you know, feel like you're making someone else feel bad because they're they're just there to listen and to help. Yeah, I agree. So as part of this, of I guess, reframing, like she challenged me to, you know, come up with a motto or, you know, some kind of mantra or whatever you want to call it of like, how do you want to live your life going forward? And I've decided to just keep it really simple and hopefully manageable is to try and be miserable for as little time as possible while recognising that it's not possible to not be miserable all the time but for as much of the time as possible and I just try and let that guide the decisions that I make. I love that. I I love that reframing. Connection is really important and I would imagine particularly when you are in regional areas and finding your tribe is something we find consistently. People say, "I found it, finding my tribe is so important. We met via Zoom on Bowel Cancer Australia's The Movement. How has this experience been for you and how important is connection for you? I don't think I have a word to describe how important it's been, particularly post like this the last 12 months with the big surgery and then being able to talk to people that have had similar surgeries or similar experiences to go to people and say, oh, I'm having, you know, I'm getting this reaction, you know, what sort of treatment stuff have you tried? Because patients often know better than oncologists what works and what doesn't work for them and everybody has like different perspectives and not everything works for everybody but there's something out there that would normally work for someone. So being able to talk through those things and know that there's a safe space where you can go and talk about that stuff and get recommendations if you needed or want a second opinion, talk about relationship issues that come with cancer or, you know, managing people who don't necessarily get on board with what's going on, all that sort of stuff. Um, I, I think it's really important and particularly for me, I was only commenting to someone else in the movement. So I feel a bit like the movement chatterbox at the moment, but I'm feeling quite isolated. So for me, like reaching out and being connected is a way to, you know, get my social media dopamine fix without doom scrolling. Yes, yes, exactly. And I'm also a member of the the movement um, exercise group as well. So it's really good to see like other people getting out there and doing stuff because it does sometimes encourage you to just come on, you know, if so-and-so is like 10 days after an even bigger surgery than I had and they're walking up and down the corridor, get off your bottom (laughs) and go outside, at least walk around the water tank. But he is a bit of a superstar, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, Let's, uh, we can call it an Anthony Ellison. Yeah, that's yeah, you yeah. Um, who started the Meaningful Movement. He's a stretch goal, but, you know, it's good to have stretch goals in your life. 
Yes, that's right. (laughs) Talking about exercise then, because we know that it is vitally important in cancer recovery, even prevention of cancer. So how important is exercise to you? You've mentioned it briefly. It's essential. It was the first thing, it's ironic, two things I said to my GP the first time I was diagnosed. I'm not going to be able to exercise for a long time. We're going to need to do something about that. My mental health will suffer. And the second thing was, oh, my God, I'm going to have to tell my mother. (laughs) Which one was first? Or was it in that order? (laughs) The exercise was absolutely first. I'm aware, I was already aware enough to know how important exercise was in keeping me mentally, you know, stable because I was perimenopausal at that point. That comes with its own mood challenges and all that stuff. 100%. So that's particularly in the last 10 years, been a really important way that I've helped you know, regulate my moods, um, you know, keep things on the level, stress management, stress relief. Um, so critical. I was up and out of the bed and walking around the wards as soon as I could be. And I just try to move a bit every day. Look, honestly, sometimes on treatment is just not possible. And you just have to pat yourself on the back if you manage to get out of bed and, you know, use the loo. That's that's about all you can do in that day. But that's just a day. I think it's the consistency over time rather than the discrete, you know, one day when I can't do this. It's just keeping up those habits. I'm convinced that my recovery from both surgeries has been better because I was fit uh, and because I was exercising regularly. Um, I was um, beating the milestones they were setting for me in hospital in terms of movement and what I was doing. And that just makes a big difference. It just helps you get back to as much of your life as possible, as quickly as possible. And it's just a really important part of my life, even though the rest of the time I'm fundamentally quite a lazy person. All my hobbies are, all my hobbies are sedentary. <laughs> I <laughs> find that very hard to believe. I, people do, but it is actually the truth. I have bursts of mad activity followed by long periods of slothfulness. Yes, but you're using other parts of, you know, your brain and yeah, other exactly. things. So, so, and I'm, so, I'm you know. pottering. <laughs> you know, I, I'm pottering. But yes. yeah. Gabrielle, I finally ask everyone, as those who listen, know three key points that you want people to take away from today's podcast. What would your three be? Number one is never be afraid to advocate for yourself. If that means taking a support person with you to every appointment that you go to, to help give you moral support to advocate for yourself, just do it. Your specialists are experts in their field, but no one is an expert in your body other than you. So, and, and it has to be a partnership. It's not what they want, it's what you, you want. That may have to be a compromise if what you want and what you need are two different things, but in the end, that's your decision to make. So never be afraid to advocate for yourself and, and what you want is my number one. My number two, don't Google. I know I've just talked about searching, but I was doing it very prescriptively. There are so many rabbit holes you can go down. You can find a statistic to support just about everything. It will unreasonably terrify you and you'll get a whole lot of information that might not actually be relevant. So try really, really hard not to Google. And if you do need that support, there are key areas that you can go to to get proper support and um, understanding. Go to well-respected sites. Go to Bowel Cancer Australia. Go to Cancer Council. You know, those sites where you can get good quality information that you can then do something with. Look, I think the third one is just going to be my mantra for the year. Try and be miserable as little as possible. <laughs> and do your screening. I like how it's four. I'm cheating, but, you know, do the screening, people. Do the screening. <laughs> I like your four. That snappy four. 
So we can go with four. Gabrielle, thank you so much for being our guest on the Bottom Line podcast. Like everything in the world of a cancer patient going through treatment, it's day by day. And I know that you are in the middle of treatment right at this moment. So very appreciative. And I'm delighted that you could join us on the Bottom Line podcast to talk about your perspective as a cancer patient, but also from a regional perspective, the need to self-advocate and the connection with your tribe. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Bottom Line podcast. To find out more about bowel cancer or for support or simply to donate, please go to bowelcanceraustralia.org.